0: a good story is a story that is able to move me mm-hmm. and this also has something to do with objectivity and just like just being a robotic kind of storyteller when you have the facts and you, you just pour it out I think a lot of the time journalists are afraid to kind of delve deeper into like the emotions of a story yes. and when a journalist or a writer is able to do that without showing particular bias to one side I think that's beautiful and that makes a very good story and that makes a good impression of me I just want to feel the emotion Even if it's like a terrible circumstance, you know, it's a beautiful scenario, whatever it is, if it's a mundane, everyday story, I want to feel what you were feeling when you were witnessing, experiencing, when you were reporting that story. That's what I try to do. I want to bring people with me there. I want, like, if somebody is telling me something, if I'm interviewing somebody and they have made me shed tears, it is my duty, I think, to go back to my computer and make you, the reader, feel that.
1: And welcome to Sakina Speaks My name is Sakina Ishabani And I'm your host Doing the absolute most on this platform will we come yet again To have the conversations and discussions About the things that matter I have a illustrious A well-known and renowned journalist That I'm going to be speaking to today And really just delving into the nature of journalism And understanding, you know The mind of the journalist And the world of journalism Storytelling, news reporting And then some It's not going to answer all your questions but I really do hope to give you insight and understanding into this, you know, fine art, this craft and um, this really risky career career path that a lot of people undertake that we seldom take for granted. You know, you just switch on the TV at 7 p.m. and you watch the news. But how many of us actually take the time to think about, you know, the sacrifices, the, the extent, you know, of the work and the realities of the work that these people experience in order to deliver a real, raw and truthful story? Right. So today I speak to the one and only Shola Lawal Now I'm going to be reading her bio straight from the New York Times Which is also one of the publications that she has written for Based in Lagos, Nigeria Shola Lawal writes about the environment, human rights, migration, conflict and gender She has worked in Ghana, Togo, Mexico, Finland and the United States And she received the Future Awards Africa Prize for Journalism in 2019 And her short documentary film Where Power Lies which is also called Ile Ifa in Yoruba, premiered at the MIT Center for International Studies in January 2020. She is a graduate of the University of Lagos and she is my guest this evening. Thank you so much for joining me.
0: <laughs> thank you for having me it's always weird hearing hearing all of that it would it's like wait is that me yeah, yeah. okay
1: um <laughs> and, and i'm so grateful you know to to be able to have you know such a well decorated person you know just share this this platform with me thank you thank you for having me Oh, we're going to get right into it in my favorite way because I like to, you know, build up the story. Um, no pun intended. I like to start from the beginning. So please tell us about when you were growing up. What exactly was your dream? What did you dream of becoming one day? And when exactly, rather, did the dream of journalism materialize?
0: Right. I get asked this question quite a lot. And, you know, every time I get to answer that question, I think it's just a moment of reflection and just a moment of like, wow, I'm so thankful. Mm -hmm. Um, for the life that I'm living right now because it's so funny that this was kind of what I envisioned for myself right from the start. And I think I am extremely uniquely lucky and blessed that I can think back to who I was at nine, at 10, And the person that I am now, the person that I'm becoming every single day is exactly what I wanted. And it's it's a deeply gratifying experience. I remember when I was growing up, I mean, initially, like everybody, you know, we we watched a lot of J-Lo, a lot of Madonna, and I really wanted to be a backup singer (laughs) growing up, I think, (laughs) around around seven, eight, you know, I was really convinced that I would dance for J-Lo at some point. Uh, But then things started to get serious in my life and I started to pick up. I was always a, an avid, you know, reader, yes. fortunately for me. And so I started to pick up more serious books. And I remember I had um, stumbled on Sydney Sheldon's Best Laid Plans mm-hmm. and the sequel to that, Doomsday Conspiracy. And I read about these two powerful women. Um, one of them was Leslie Stewart, and Leslie Stewart, she she was jilted by, you know, a guy who she thought she was in love with, yes, who she thought was in love with her as well. And he kind of ditched her because he wanted to be the president of the United States and he had to marry the daughter of a powerful politician who would get him there. So she what she did was she bought a media conglomerate and she brought him down. Wow. Right. And <laughs> yeah. So that, that's one part. And then the second part was then Diana Evans in the sequel. And she was a journalist who was just like brilliant. And she had gone to do this war reporting, I believe it was in Yemen or Syria or something like that, somewhere far away, of course, and I think it, I believe in the Middle East. And she had adopted one of the kids that she had seen there. And it was just like I was just open to this world that I knew nothing about. Mm-hmm. It was just like i have to be i have to be a, i have to be in the media world and i have to be a journalist because i i could tell even at nine the power of storytelling, the power of narrative, and the power that we wield as people who go into communities that are marginalized, that need help, Yes. that we can actually not just tell their stories, but even the help that we offer when we are on the ground, right? It's immense. It's, it's powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and So I just knew that I had to be in this industry. So that was kind of how it started for me. And I've always nurtured that dream. I've always nurtured that dream. And, you know, here I am today, thankfully.
1: That is amazing. So what is your perception? I mean, you're already in awe, you know, of these women that were able to do these things in the media. What was your main perception of like the news at the time of the media at the time that you personally would experience that you would personally watch both in Nigeria and internationally?
0: I'm so happy that you mentioned Nigeria because uh, watching Nigerian news was a big part of my life Mm growing up. My mom, I think, I think she just wanted to suck the happiness out of us (laughs) every (laughs) night, and then she would put on the news, and then she would sleep off. Right, so we were forced to watch the news every night, and it was the Nigerian Television Authority, which is like basically propaganda, right? So I grew up on that. But also, I think in my spare time I would also watch CNN as well. It was really fascinating to me. All these people would be reporting from all these war zones. I was really taken by you know war reporting back then. And just like I would stand in the mirror, I remember at that time and say things like Shalala, well reporting for CNN." <laughs> that kind of thing, right? Like I always did that, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, in my mom's bedroom. So I think growing up, I I when I started to like I said take things more seriously, I realized that the Nigerians television authority that I kind of grew up watching was just basically a propaganda machine and mm-hmm. that that wasn't the standard that I was going for. So I started to kind of uh, look more to places like CNN, watching Aisha say Anderson Cooper, Christiana Amanpour, of course. I mean, mm-hmm. I really, I think I watched CNN for a long time and I just found them fascinating. I found them interesting and I just knew that this was the environment that I wanted to be in. I think I started to get kind of disillusioned though. Yes. When I, like I said, progressed even further grew up grew grew even more i started to watch a lot more channels like al jazeera i started to see different styles Mm -hmm. i started to understand the politics that is behind many of these news channels and that was when I, i started to kind of realize that you know everything there's always subtext yes you know if al jazeera is pushing a story about qatar i know why if cnn is pushing a story about the u.s i know why If cnn is trying to push an investigation about china it looks little bit you know biased I know Mm -hmm. why right and it's not to to judge any of these places right I understand what is going on in the media world we have gotten to a point where it's so difficult for the media to survive that the media companies need these people to back them they need Mm -hmm. the Jeff Bezos they need the Qatar government private donors who will always have their own agenda so this is just what they need to do to survive but I think it's just important as a journalist and as a news consumer to know what everybody's agenda is so that you're able to pick what you really need. And you're able to see the subtext when everybody's trying to force their own agenda on you, you're able to kind of step back and say, yeah, let me decide, you know, what this is really about.
1: So then that brings me to, to the question, how objective is journalism? How objective is news reporting? And can we actually ever have completely objective news?
0: I think it'd be difficult Mm -hmm. I think it'd be difficult to, to be a human being and to say that you are completely objective. Absolutely. I think that's something that an AI-powered robot could do <laughs> efficiently, right? Yeah. So the, the good thing is that we aren't, we're human beings with emotions and we are swayed by what we see, what we experience. And that's the beauty of journalism. I think a lot of the time, the emphasis is too much on objectivity. Mm-hmm. Rather than on oh, what is morally right. And in my reporting, I, I think I can only speak for myself at the end of the day. Yes. I try to do my due diligence. If there's a story that I understand that I will, I will be biased, I just won't do it. Mm-hmm. Right? If it's clear that I will be biased. But if there's a story where I can see that there's, there's oppression, I can see who is being oppressed, I can see who the oppressor is. Of course, I'm going to try to get both sides, but I'm automatically not on the side of the oppressor. Yes. Right, and I would give more airtime. I would give more space to someone who I know is there. I try to not prioritize the vague term objectivity when I'm doing my reporting. Yes. Try to prioritize what is morally right, um, and that's what I go after. And of course, what is morally right is is subjective to everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. It has varying definitions, but for me, I do what I think in my heart and in my soul. It's the right thing to do that when I sleep, I can go to bed and say, yes, I I did a good thing. I did a good thing today. Mm -hmm. That's that's what I try to do. But I mean, everybody has their own difference. I'm an emotional person. Yes. I'm very sensitive. And it doesn't do my reporting any good to cut that off.
1: I love how, like, we're just unpacking your mind. And even though, you know, to the greatest extent possible we, we, I'm, I'm trying to get a sense you know an inside scoop into the world of a journalist and like the your, your personal experience but it's really even more beneficial even more rewarding to get you know insight into the kind of person that you are because it speaks to how we view journalists as literally these reporters man like they're just giving us the news you guys are like models in the model in, in the fashion industry like we don't really take a deeper look or seek a deeper understanding of your role and um your essence as people you know beyond what you do and that brings me to the question of whether journalism is something you do or something that you are
0: that's such a good question um and it's a question that i'm i'm unpacking myself every day i think for a long time like i said i wanted to be a journalist and i really identified as a to-be journalist and i remember a period in my life when i wasn't where I needed to be, where I was trying to navigate. How do I get from the University of Lagos to a place like CNN to the BBC? Yes. How do I get those international credentials? And I wasn't, I just, you know, it was difficult. And I remember being extremely sad and down and depressed. It was a very terrible period of my life. And things started to look up when I, you know, when I started to get those international bylines, finally. And recently I've been looking deeper into myself as a journalist but also as a spiritual person and trying to yes. like to identify who am i and you know what, what's my essence um, and i realized that if i continue to tie my happiness to journalism and my bylines that i'm I'm going to find myself a lot of the time at the bottom. Uh, yes. You know, mentally, emotionally, I will exhaust myself. I, I, I will I will continuously burn myself out because I will be putting so much pressure on myself to be that one thing and to identify that one thing. I mean, it got so bad that when I would even meet people, like relationship-wise, like the very first thing that I would say was like, I'm a reporter and it's like, who cares? <laughs> We're trying to meet, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is, yeah, it, like I got identified so much with that thing is is, you know and I I I just realized yeah this isn't it and so for me I think personally you as a reporter you're always thinking about stories right you're always in your head you're always a journalist because you're like oh my god that's a good story if you're going on vacation it's like "What, what story can I do from here that is fine but I think for me to completely just identify as this one thing without looking into other parts of my life that I could grow and to just use journalism as a shield all the time and not examine other parts of my life, I think it's detrimental for me personally. True. Um, yeah. So while I think that, you know, we should always be on our game, should always have a running list of stories that you want to do in your head. I mean, when you're meeting people that you think you could be life partners with and you're immediately presenting as a journalist, I mean, that's when I think you should take a step back and say, but who else am I behind, yes. behind the mask, right? And mm-hmm. that, that's kind of where I am. it's a difficult question I don't think there's a yes or no to it I mean I think everybody kind of works with whatever is good for them and I think for me it's just I'm at a point where I'm like yeah this isn't it. I need to be everything. Mm-hmm. I can't be just one thing. And uh, the journalism kind of identity has served me for a while. But I, re- I realized recently that it's also something that can really bring me down because I wasn't as productive as, as I used to be uh, this past year. And I was really hard on myself. And the more, the more I, I, I criticized myself, the less I was even able to produce. And it was just yep. like this continuous journey of like, oh, my God, anxiety and depression. And I'm taking a step back right now. And I'm trying to just be for now. hmm
1: just be. Yeah. You know, the beauty in that is number one, I relate almost verbatim. Number two, I think just like you said, you can't separate your your emotional side from the way you write, the way you tell stories and you relay stories. And in the same vein, if you don't have your own personal experiences, your own, you know, worldview and perspective, what substance will your stories have? And on the other hand, I was in the exact same place. So for the longest time, I would always write poetry. And that was, you know, my my escape, my form of expression and unfortunately I I tied that to my identity and it became something mm. that I couldn't separate from. I, literally, just like you said, which is funny enough, when someone yeah. met you it was, hi, I'm a poet. Yeah.
0: <laughs> literally. So it's like,
1: yeah. And then it got to a point where there was just so much melancholy in, in the stuff that I'd write and it was weighing me down to the point where I just get to a mm. point where I'm just sad for no reason and I don't understand why I'm sad. I can't necessarily break that cycle or whatever and personally because I'm a Christian believer we were at at like a worship session and this one one day like the holy spirit just told me like destroy all your poems like whatever poems that you have discard them remove Mm. them and it was just basically the beginning of that journey of understanding who i am and that you're not just a poet you're a person that writes poetry you know you are Mm. creation that writes poetry you are this creation that does podcasts you are this creation because literally i realized that i can't even foster proper relationships i can't even Mm. when i speak to people and i'm you know you meet amazing people and you realize oh my goodness this is really like a kingdom relationship, but then you can't move past that dimension of, oh, but this would be a great podcast episode or this could be a great poem, And you, you rob yourself of that opportunity, of that experience, of just being alive and living, you know, and enjoying that moment. So I couldn't relate more. Wow,
0: that sounds very similar to what I've been feeling and how, what, what happened after you destroyed the poems? How were you feeling after that?
1: Like the actual act of destroying the poems was, I think, the most painful painful thing I have ever experienced in my life and like menstrual cramps really come very close you know (laughs) yeah it was the weirdest thing because as I was tearing each page of the ones that I had written on paper it literally felt like there was like a a ripping of my flesh it was the Mm. weirdest thing but there was there was a release afterwards I mean of course there was a morning you know but there was a release Mm. from that thing of this is your identity. And now there was picking up the pieces and building from there because it was like, okay, great. And like, I've literally thought that being a poet is the be all and end all. And this is who I am and everything yeah. revolves around it. And when that stopped serving me, just like you said, that the journalism served you for a while, the poetry served me for, for a good while as well. But it was like, but but now what? But then what? When you can't write, does that mean that you're not enough anymore? Yeah. You're not you're not yeah. whole anymore? What, what does that, you know? Yeah. And it robbed me, And most importantly, what we don't realize is it robs other people of all the other gifts and all the other aspects of us. And it robs your family of enjoying the fullness of you and experiencing every part of you and not just what you think you are, number one. And because you are now falling into this depression or you're not yourself you're literally now affecting the people around you negatively. So yeah, I can definitely say that it, it's been a hard journey and it is a lifelong journey, but yeah. yeah, it's it's been rewarding.
0: Yeah, I was going to say as well. I mean, I think the hardest part is knowing that every day, this is what you're going to face. Like mm-hmm. you stand up every day and you have to ask because you fall back into this pattern. You fall back into this habit. Absolutely. Um, because, you know, it's been there for a while, right? But, you know, we do what we can.
1: Mm-hmm. i don't yeah. understand were you in were you in my room like <laughs> <that's possible. laughs> like literally like these are you know these are the conversations that i just have with myself like <laughs> no but like everybody is fed a fairy tale at some point and you you think oh you know you go through something you'll get out of it you'll get over it and you move but no the reality is some of these things stick with you till you die oh and, yes absolutely yeah. it's literally about choosing to to dwell on that part or moving just moving yeah just realizing moving.
0: that exactly realizing that you know you're human and you're adapting as best as you can exactly um and you're trying to break this cycle that is, is really it's a tough thing to do and even acknowledging it i think is a great victory that we, mm-hmm. we need to applaud ourselves for um and just to give ourselves space to make mistakes and get back up i think that's what matters when we get back up after making that fall again it's like yes yes but i'm, I'm up now mm-hmm
1: Yeah, I mean, this episode in itself is just testament to the fact that I've gotten up. And after taking some of the longest, the most abominable breaks, nine months off of podcasting, you know, after only releasing a few episodes, but here we are approaching the 40th episode. So it's really something to pat yourself on the back for, which is something that I also learned that it's okay to really give yourself the props, you know, once in a while, appreciate yourself, recognize your efforts, recognize, you know, the littlest of things and, and don't deprive yourself of progress.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's what the, that, that was the first thing I said to you. I was like, your podcast has been consistent. And I think, I think that's what matters. Even if you take a break, you know, I can see even as an outsider that, you know, this is something that's on your mind, um, that this is something that you really want to do. And I, you know, I applaud you, sister, Thank you. <laughs> for getting back up. Thank yeah. you so
1: much. I wish you all the strength and literally all the best on this, on this really good journey that we're both on. It's, yeah, it's, it's beautiful to see.
0: <laughs> it is.
1: <laughs> now, speaking of beautiful things and, you know, the stories that really captivated our hearts and almost robbed us of the ability to tell these good stories to other people and to liberate other people. What do you define as a good story?
0: Ah, oh, that's a good question. It's just like anything in the world, I think <laughs> it's subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's a good story is a story that is able to move me. Mm-hmm. And this also has something to do with objectivity and just like just been a robotic kind of storyteller when you have the facts and you you just pour it out I think a lot of the time journalists are afraid to kind of delve deeper into like the emotions of a story and when a journalist or a writer is able to do that without showing particular bias to one side I think that's beautiful and that makes a very good story and that makes a good impression of me I just want to feel emotions even if it's like a terrible circumstance you know it's a beautiful scenario whatever it is if it's a mundane everyday story I want to feel what you were feeling when you were witnessing experiencing, and when you were reporting yes. that story that's what I try to do I want to bring people with me there I want like if somebody is telling me something if I'm interviewing somebody and they have made me shed tears it is my duty I think to go back to my computer and make you the reader feel that I want you to to shed tears as well because that's mm-hmm. what I felt I think that's what my responsibility is I am not just somebody who goes to experience events and just like gives you the facts you know I'm also there to experience the human experience I'm also there to report to you what I felt people felt around me what the emotions were and I think that's what it, that, that's what makes a good story for me those are the kind of stories that leave a lasting impression for me
1: I love how you said you want to take your reader along because when yeah. I read your article titled Ghana must go which was basically yeah. explaining the conflict between Ghana and Nigeria I was there
0: oh um, that's so nice Thank you.
1: Even the way you explained it, that being objective, but still being able to to make me feel the emotions, I didn't get a bias. Mm. It was irrelevant whether you were Nigerian. For all, I knew you could have been Ghanaian while I was reading that. And what I felt was what your interview was going through. And I felt so bad, especially because at the end, you know, you actually ended by saying that he never went back to Nigeria and he never felt the need to go back to Nigeria. I felt so heartbroken. You know, I felt what he felt, especially Mm. being a Congolese in South Africa and you. You know, with the aftertaste of xenophobic attacks and those kind of things, I related. You know, mm. and yeah, I really was on that journey with you as you were telling that story, as you know, you were interviewing this gentleman, and I felt your sympathies, but not in a way that made the story biased. And it was in a very concise but very beautifully written, very easy to understand way. And I think when a journalist is able to relate with people, when a writer is able to relate with people, especially people from different walks of life. different educational backgrounds, especially. I think that's a very, very special thing for me.
0: Thank you. Um, I mean, I think that story was quite special for me as well. Because for a long time, I just used to hear the word of this bag, Ghana go, right? And we just Mm -hmm. used it so casually. And when I knew this, when I knew the history, I was like, how dare we?
1: Continue to, yeah.
0: Yeah, this is not something that is funny at all, right? And I just wanted to make people remember. And I think um, one of the unintended consequences, uh, like you said, as, as a Congolese person in South Africa, I remember getting a lot of messages from South Africans back then saying, oh, so Nigerians have this kind of history and now they're here in South Africa. I was like, that's not the point, guys. That's exactly, that's exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I prayed for peace in South Africa. and I prayed for peace for South Africans. I mean, I think they've gone through a lot. And it's just easy when you are when you feel caged to blame somebody. It's what happened in Nigeria back then. It's, the economy was tanking. Everything was going badly. And it just turned on Ghanaians. Mm-hmm. And the question I have is, okay, so since those people have gone, what what has happened to your economy? Precisely. What have you been able to do with yourself? So this is, the, this is the question that I ask everybody that says, you know, refugees aren't welcome. It's like, your problems have always been there. You need to look inwards. Exactly. And solve your issues. I mean, certainly people have, you know, there are issues with like uh, assimilation and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I think you need to look deeper for who to blame for your troubles.
1: That's an African reality, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, I
0: feel for you, man.
1: (laughs) But we're getting there, you know. Um, As as somebody that regards themselves as a citizen of the world, a pan-African citizen, somebody that relates to everybody and anybody, besides the North, which I'm not very exposed to, you know, your Tunisia, your Morocco and the likes, but really I feel like I'm a part of everyone and I hate sometimes feeling conflicted that I believe that I'm a part of everyone because somebody's going to tell me that I'm not Nigerian enough or I'm not South African mm. enough or I'm not Congolese enough whereas we are all one people you know at
0: the end yeah. of the day I feel that a lot personally I feel more <laughs> West African than Nigerian I am so yeah truly I mean I am so happy when I meet I remember I was on a trip in Mexico and I was trying to get through because my French is so bad I was I was trying to get through to like Africans who were there who were trying to pass through to the U.S. And everybody spoke French and I was was so frustrated. And somebody just spoke Yoruba out of nowhere. And he was from Benin Republic. I was so happy. Right. And Mm -hmm. every time I'm reporting from this continent, anywhere I am, it just gives me a different kind of fulfillment. I love this continent so much. And I, I feel I, I feel like just identifying as Nigerian is it's a small part of exactly. the love that I have for right? Exactly. And I want to feel everything. That's what, so the reason. Like when you reached out to me and you said I'm Congolese, and I was like, yeah, you are already <laughs> like okay, let's do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is always a joy meeting other Africans. I love it.
1: It's such an experience. Like on my side, I feel so Nigerian. It is. <laughs> So have you bad. been i have not i have not even been to my home country <laughs> but i i feel such a sense of belonging and fulfillment and understanding within your culture and just your people there's just i don't know like my family members can vouch for the fact that i speak pigeon here at least uh, 30 to 40 percent of the day you know correct <laughs> <laughs> i literally i literally get home <laughs> and my my <laughs> greeting to my family is uh-uh wait, the apple. what's going on <laughs> i'm not even lying <laughs> like to you. so it's like why can it not be okay for me to you know but yeah this is a chat for another day
0: <laughs> yeah it's, it's a it's a whole book you know it's a whole thing on its own yeah
1: sadly yeah no i think we should really do away with these boundaries that have remained yeah after colonialism it's, because really it's they they don't work for us
0: it is so silly it is so hilariously it's 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 so silly because if we knew our own history, if we knew how much we have been oppressed, not just by the the Americans who came, who took us over the transatlantic slavery, but also by, you know, earlier periods, by the Arabs. It's like, the other day I was just thinking about, like, black people, Africans, when do we come together and say enough? When do we come together and and stand together and bond and protect ourselves?
1: Exactly. Because
0: we've been open this way. We've been exploited over time and we are still being exploited. You know, we need to do something about that. And it Mm -hmm. starts with self-love. We need to look at each other and say, I love you and I will protect you. And that's where it starts. Absolutely this is this is yeah. where you know this is where
1: we get we get worked <laughs> up and, and so passionate about it because it's hard. I know at some point you you feel I like know. we've been preaching this message over and over again and my realization recently which really yeah I I listened to and I was like you know what that is exactly it is that I mean we're not going to say that this is the first time that this is preached or um, that we are the first Africans to realize that we need to you know have a sense of togetherness and oneness and Ubuntu has been around forever but we are trying to rewrite the African narrative we're trying to write our own stories but if we don't believe our own stories we're going nowhere and the problem right now is not that we're not rewriting it enough it's not that we're not trying to claim our history or buy back our identity it's that we don't believe in ourselves
0: yeah i mean i think that's accurate i mean i, I guess it, it does take a it does take a lifetime to change when you've been told over and over again that you're just good enough to be a slave, that you're just good enough to be a second-class citizen. But we need to do that work and see ourselves as what we truly are. I remember um I was watching an interview of uh, Ous- Usman Sembene, the Senegalese filmmaker, and he was like, "Why do I need to turn to to Europe when Europe is the flower and I am the sun?" You know, and I, wow. I feel like this is what we don't realize about ourselves. I mean, look at this continent. When I'm traveling on this continent, when I'm traveling just within Africa, I see what the colonizers saw you know is it the the sea from Nigeria to Ghana is it the forest in the Congo we have such a beautiful continent and we can we can do better
1: definitely definitely and it starts with a conversation and I hope that this conversation really does not only edify somebody but drive them to change drive them to effect change in their respective circles in their community in their world and I hope more of us just buy into this idea that we really are enough but we need to believe it and act accordingly accordingly
0: absolutely
1: now let's go back right into you know more the practicality of of your job you are a freelance journalist which comes with its perks and also comes with a lot of its own risks how has that journey been in and what has been the the riskiest mission that you've had to go on
0: <laughs> this freelance question I get it a lot um and it, it always breaks my heart to kind of tell people the truth. And the truth is that being a freelancer isn't it's not easy. It takes so much discipline mm-hmm. to first of all, it's like when I started out, the rejections were steady <laughs> Wow. yeah because I just wasn't you know it was a combination of factors I wasn't pitching the right people um, the right stories I wasn't crafting my pitches well enough but over over the course of a year you know I I think I was able to really greatly improve so that's good I mean it's difficult but if you just keep at it you'll get there and I think yeah. this is I think this is one thing is like people always come at me and so I'm like oh my god this, this freelancing thing is so hard but I'm like you know you just need to go at it and I, I don't know if I'm able to convey that all the time like this is the work that you need to do to get to where you need to be. Yes. But it's a terribly difficult journey. <sighs> Knowing what everybody wants, what the New York Times wants, what the Christian Science Monitor wants. Everybody wants different things. They have mm-hmm. their own different values. There are different editors that you're working with. And even something as trivial as an editor having a bad day could mean that you get a rejection. And what, what wow. it did for me, yeah, absolutely. And what it did for me was just build my resilience. I was, Like I said, I'm an emotional, very sensitive person. So it was really terrible for me at the start. But I, I think I was at the point where I said to myself, look, it's either this or it's nothing. Mm-hmm. And I had nothing to lose, and I just kept at it every single day. Rejections. In fact, I was at one point I was welcoming the rejections because it meant I was moving, right? I think there's a physics law that says you know a body in motion you know stays in motion unless acted upon
1: by um, exactly.
0: An <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's something like that. I'm terrible with science, but it's, if you just move, even if you're falling every day, at one point you will be falling forward right? That's what we want to do. That's the freelance journey in in a nutshell. I can't explain how difficult it is. You just need to start and you need to get to the point where you need to be. Sorry, what was the second question?
1: What has been the riskiest mission that you've basically embarked on Ah, in order to tell that story?
0: This is another difficult question. The riskiest, like there are so many (laughs) risky missions. Uh, I think one that immediately stands out though, I remember that I wanted to tell a story about the Syrian-Leonian war. There had been, you know, Nigerian soldiers on the ground at the time, in Sierra Leone, and they had committed quite a lot of atrocities. Because first of all, the Nigerian military, you know, is not the strongest when it comes to discipline. Mm-hmm. Secondly, because they were operating in foreign territory and they, they allowed themselves to be manipulated by people who had, a, who had another agenda. So a lot of crimes were committed against people. Uh, The Sierra Leonean people. And so I remember I wanted to tell that story in 2019, and I had gone on the ground in Sierra Leone. So one of the people that was, you know, very mercilessly beating his whole, his parents, his mom, and I think his brother was killed by a a very, they they described him as a wicked officer, a wicked American officer. This was the first time he was kind of like reflecting on that whole period after a long time. So he was like, you know what, why don't I even go and find where they buried my mom today? So I followed him. I was like, okay, let's do that. So Mm -hmm. he went. Uh, And it happens that in Sierra Leone, Right. This is a country that has gone through quite a difficult period and that unfortunately hasn't really been able to come out of it. When it gets to your view, you can immediately feel that, oh, my God, this is a country that has been held back by this experience. So we, we still have people, people who were children then who, you know, who got orphaned by the war. They're still living around in the streets. A lot of them live in cemeteries, right? They're in Wow. Like, a, like I said, like, yeah, we got to a cemetery and was like, wait, is this a park? Are we in a garden? Like, what's going on? Because mm-hmm. there, was, there was people on, on the how do you call it, the stones? The tombstones, um, yeah. There were people sitting on them and like, you know, having fun and, you know, smoking and stuff like Like, okay, interesting. This is really <laughs> a different experience for me. Definitely. Um, but we, yeah, so we, we were asking around and all eyes were on us at that point and I was the only woman there. And so one boy, volunteer he said i think i know where they buried your mother and then he took us to the very the farthest end of the cemetery and these boys were just like coming like they were just like surrounding us right mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and i was i was just thinking that at the person i was with like oh my god if anything this because these were people that were high not necessarily in their right senses and there's a woman here and i wasn't necessarily dressed as you know just a random serial union i was i was dressed like <laughs> i was a reporter yeah um and i remember i wanted to bring out my camera and stuff and the guy was just like giving me eye like don't even try let's just see what we need to see and go right and i Mm. I think that that was one prayer where i was like okay shala did you really need to do that because i (laughs) we left and nothing happened but i was like okay that could have gone seriously wrong wrong." yeah (laughs) that could have gone seriously wrong i mean i think so far i haven't like i haven't really done any war reporting or anything like that so i haven't been in like the riskiest, like oh my god um i was close to death or something like that and I, i think those are inevitable as you go on but so far i haven't been in those kind of or I've, I've just been lucky I remember as well that I, I was going to Zampara which is quite a hotbed of kidnapping and conflict right now and yeah. I, I took a bus instead of taking a plane and this is how the kidnappers get you like when you're in the bus and I remember a, a fellow colleague saying Shala why would you do that like are you crazy <laughs> like uh, when I look back I was like okay why did I take a bus you know it's like I just wanted to get there faster and the plane was going to be slow so I think a, a lot a lot of times I've been I've been lucky I would say I don't have like the, the typical war war stories or like, you know, near death that people have but mm-hmm. I've, I've been yeah I've been quite lucky when it comes to like how difficult an experience the reporting was I think <laughs> interestingly it might be um, it might be the fact that I was at one point uh, on the New York Times climate desk this kind of answer would be out, out of the norm but I was I remember I was uh, on the New York Times climate desk and yes. I'm so terrible at science It's Shakina um, <laughs> I, I'm terrible it's like I was always a C student at science and I was put on this desk and I thought to myself I can't make it here so they give you this like studies to read and then you have to write 500 word stories on like a 6,000 word report wow and I just knew uh, yeah and I just knew I couldn't make an I think that was for me the <laughs> riskiest thing because I had to, <laughs> to read this whole book this whole study research and understand it and digest it and then write about it I mean um and I did I think I did about 10 studies before I left the New York Times so for me one of my oh my god shall I pat on the back did it. Because I mm-hmm. did, yeah because i i i was like uh, i'm going to die before i did be here that's for sure <laughs> but, I, but i did it yeah. uh <laughs> no, yeah
1: congratulations for that because yeah no I, I relate to that too science is just you know
0: i mean they had me calculating like carbon emissions and i'm like well, what's going on here <laughs> <laughs> where did that one start <laughs> When did this all? I'm not understanding. So, but you know, I did it and it, it, it makes me really
1: proud to know that I, I got through that. Amazing. You actually did mention this part and, and I really like that you did. Uh, You mentioned that the different publications, you know, they they, they want different things. And at the beginning of our conversation, you actually mentioned that they also are unfortunately pushed by different agendas. So how do you yeah. then as a reporter, or is there even a possibility for you as a reporter, especially because you're a freelance one, you know, it's different if you, you're based at that particular publication or with that news company, how then do you produce unadulterated news reporting? Is is it possible or do you then have to sort of alter, not yourself, but alter the way you write and alter the perspective or, or how you convey this message to suit that publication? And in that sense, you know, sort of alter the message
0: <laughs> that's a straight yes whether you're a freelancer or you are based with a second publication there's no way around it. you know you have to because your editors won't even let it pass mm-hmm. right so unless you're not interested anymore unless you want to open your own you want to kind of set up your own publication and in that case you will also probably have people who are going to sponsor you and who are going to want to do things a certain kind of way
1: and then the cycle it, continues it's
0: the, exactly it's the irony it's the great paradox that the, the media that is supposed to be unbiased finds itself nowadays. Being, yeah. For me, I think from my experience, it's just I don't see a way around it. I, I just don't. You know, even when I'm writing my pictures, I'm like, oh, okay, so I'm writing to this publication. I need to do it this way. This is mm-hmm. what I need to highlight. It's that every you're always censoring yourself in some way, you're always compromising, you're always negotiating. That's the unfortunate reality. I'm not certain that it's unfortunate actually, that might be a strong word. Mm-hmm. Like now that I'm thinking about it's like okay so why is it unfortunate? I mean why is it? Yeah, want what they? Yeah, people want what they want. Why is that terrible? I mean if if somebody is not telling you to to push values that you know are destructive to society, you know that is a good thing. Yeah, exactly. It's what it is, right? It's like okay they they just want a certain thing. Like I remember I I pitched a story to an editor recently and they were like oh my god I can't we can't take this because you know we like to stay out of medical stories because we kind of align with the Christian faith and Mm -hmm. that was fine. Like okay yeah yeah I get that. what it is I I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing yeah you just need to be aware of these things when you're unaware then it's the way you're likely to make mistakes um, so, yes, you will have to negotiate in the media world, whether you're a freelancer or not. If you want to get published, if you want to make money, then you have to dance to the tune of your editors and, and the paper that you're writing for or the publication that you're working for.
1: The the hope is that, you know, whatever tune it is, it's a good tune and it's within alignment of your, your moral values and, and standing, basically.
0: That is now the duty for you as the person who is pitching to know that, OK, I will not pitch this publication because I know that they're going to try to twist the story in a way that it's not what I'm trying to convey. Okay. That is your responsibility that is then how you now filter okay where do i pitch where like i was so there's some publications i i won't touch because it's like I, yeah no right mm-hmm. because you don't they don't align with my values we don't have the same perspective on issues and i think as well particularly in the case of africa i think some editors some publications are very quick to kind of want to jump on a stereotypical story yes they even reach out to people for it right and it's infuriating because i sometimes find myself writing for these publications i'm not a saint right um um, yes, I, I have found myself, writing for some of these publications I'm like, oh my god. But I, I think what I try to do in that at that point is because I have some kind of leverage. I try to say, no, this is not what I'm saying. This is what I'm trying to say. This is wrong. This is almost racist, right? Yes. Like <laughs> I will point that out in that space. Mm-hmm. But I'm still aware that you know I'm not really supposed to be pushing these people, and then I try to like step back. And but yeah, it's 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 difficult. I think if you have very strong, I think one thing that I've learned as well, like I said, is resilience. Even though I'm very sensitive, I'm very emotional. You need to be able to step back and be objective sometimes and just put your your emotions aside and just do what needs to be done
1: i hear you and we have to carry that forward basically i think in in almost every occupation nowadays you know yeah and so thank you so much miss Lowell. to close off right i'm gonna i'm gonna end this off with a very powerful question and okay this is the about <laughs> it came to me and i was like this is the beautiful ending lord like okay what what then is first of all your your perspective on freedom of Mm -hmm. speech Mm -hmm. what is Hmm. the extent of freedom of speech is freedom of speech actually a real thing because is it even possible to say anything and have no one be in opposition or say something that is potentially in opposition but not suffer the consequences because it is within your rights and freedoms
0: man that is such a it's a brilliant question but it's also very difficult to answer um I think on the surface of it, it's like people should be given the right to express their feelings, right? Yes. And that should be simple enough, right? It's like, yeah, okay, air your opinions, debate. I think that's a fundamental anchor for freedom of speech. It's like, okay, there's a right to debate because we're not in a totalitarian or authoritarian system. Yes. People have differing views. That's what makes us human. We were not all created in one day, even if we were right? We are all different. We have different backgrounds. We all see things differently. Mm -hmm. And it might not necessarily be what you want to hear, but people have a right to say what they want. And you have a right to face your front right like yep i i think i'm very traditional with this and i've also been trying to be very careful because it's such a weighty argument now because we're now in the age of a certain kind of wokeness that yeah. that i think could be harmful to freedom of expression mm-hmm. i was reading recently on the economist about how there have been some theorists some um, professors in British universities who have been kind of like fighting for women's space to be women's space and not be taken over by like you know the trans community and how they've been attacked and it, yeah. it just made me it just made me it's like oh, sometimes I don't even understand what the argument is about anymore mm-hmm. so many things are so many words are thrown around they're like what is even going on what are we saying it, it all appears very blurry I think people a lot of people need to take a step back we are not saying I'm not saying that it's right for people to incite violence no Mm -hmm. but I also I I also think we need to critically look at what is a fair when is it it's it's difficult (laughs) I need to articulate it very well because it's it's just um it's so controversial now I, I think we just need to look at it very objectively I think a lot of what people are saying now is like oh this person is attacking me I don't see the attack. I see someone saying a lot of the time what they feel and you have a right to come out and say what you feel. Mm -hmm.
1: I I understand what you're saying, yeah.
0: Yeah, but we also need to be able to say, oh, okay, this is a clear case of you're inciting violence against somebody or you're promoting destructive values. I think we need to make those things clearer. You yep. can't muddy the waters with all these words that we throw around. Mm-hmm. It's very confusing. It's at some point it gets shallow because you're like, where is yes. the essence of the debate? Mm-hmm. What is the point? Even as journalists, you know, I think we always, when you're doing a, a good story, you always want to seek out the nuance. You always want to seek out what's the deeper debate, what's the deeper, what's the subtext, what are people feeling underneath that nobody's necessarily talking about? And when we start to censor ourselves so much, when then we start to we start to kill these nuances that are there mm-hmm. right and we start to pretend that you know everybody's feeling a certain kind of way but no people are just scared to talk
1: beautifully said yeah it's, it's,
0: a, it's a delicate conversation i will end it there <laughs> Does not get anybody canceled <laughs> yeah I'm still young for that. Like, I, I still need to, I have a long way to go. Exactly. I just want to finally do my job.
1: <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> I, I appreciate you. And I know many other people, you know, especially the Nigerian community and the, the African community at large, even those that are yet to be exposed to your writing, be exposed to what you've done, not just for journalism, but for storytelling, for putting African stories on the map. In particular, migrant stories, you know, stories of the marginalized, of women. I really do appreciate you on, on behalf of those people as well. I really do say thank you for pushing for it for forging for it you know because many of us are not aware of the struggles that you have you know those nights where you're racking your mind trying to get that story out trying to tell that story on behalf of people that don't even know that you are you're fighting for them you know and it's it's just it's really really amazing you know it's a beautiful self sacrifice it's it's not just about you know getting paid for for writing a 500 word piece or it's more than that and you're making a major contribution to history documenting the the experience of this generation and I'm, I'm really really glad that I came across your page that's you know the one part which I actually forgot to ask you which is about you know your opinion on social media and how it has helped to advance journalism storytelling and how it has also affected it negatively because yeah. social media for me there are a lot of things that I don't have that discipline that I should have with it and that's why many a times I've had negative experiences I've articulated this before but like on Twitter it was premature it was before my time and I went on there and I was scarred you know by just how (laughs) brutal people can be all in the name of freedom of speech and just like freedom of expression and so I was like you know what let me take my time step back but I'm gonna get back into it because you know I need to find my tribe and I need to reach out to a lot more people that need to listen to these conversations like this but yeah, yeah social media has helped me a lot in the regard that I found you I found your page I found you know what you were doing and what you were posting about and and that curated experience really drew me to say, this is somebody that I really need to speak to. So in closing, what do you now think are the pros and cons of social media when it comes to advancing journalism?
0: yeah um thank you for that question and I, I think I just really want to quickly add that you know when you messaged me as well I felt a kindred spirit like I was like this is a kindred spirit talking to me and I <laughs> really immediately felt like a, a good energy from you and I, I want to appreciate you as well for what you're doing I think it's really important for us to talk to ourselves like this and to document our own experiences and it yes. makes me it made me feel really good when you said a journalist that has been decorated like you. I was like well. <laughs> <laughs> okay that's really nice I mean I, I think the past year for me has been really difficult the ENTAS protest covering Lagos my own city just seeing it burn down this past year has been really hard so mm-hmm. it boosted me a little when you said those very kind of words to me so thank you
1: I'm glad and then
0: yeah and then uh, I think social media has like everything in the world It's good and it's bad side for me particularly I need to be in the know all the time mm-hmm. right and social media is just the best platform I can go on Twitter see what's happening in Ivory Coast see what's happening in Gabon it's perfect for me and as well we saw during the NSARS protest how very monumental social media would prove in documenting the repression of protesters in Lagos Instagram live was how we saw what was happening how we knew what was happening if not there would have been a a more massive cover up than what we're even seeing right now from the government so it's been absolutely critical for me as a journalist on the other hand I think you know social media also encourages this herd mentality that I find destructive almost to the point where it's sad when when I see people for the sake of they call it virtue signaling but I don't want to really use that word because I think like again like I said we throw so many words around this, at this yeah. point it's like what's, I don't, what's that Anyway, mm-hmm. it feels a lot of the time very performative a lot of people feel the need to perform a lot of people feel the need to conform and it's sad mm-hmm. I find myself a lot of the time now pulling back especially from Twitter there are a lot of smart people there there are a lot of intellectuals but I think that we because we we view ourselves as very close yet far away we feel we feel like we can hurt people and it's fine yeah because we're not physically in each other's space, but it's it's a terrible thing to do. It's the bullying that goes on there, the trolling that goes on there. It's, it's insane. Mm-hmm. It's harmful, and for me particularly as a journalist, I don't. Yeah, it's just a way of like, okay, so I I just need to know what part of Twitter I need to be using, and I need to know when to get off. Yes, I need to know the good things to take away, and just like just leave the, the bad out. And that's kind of how I view it. I mean, I think Instagram particularly is kind of my own happy place. It's like I'm just there, like just it's just good vibes on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Which I, I agree. I totally agree. <laughs> But as well, I mean, there's also like trends as well there that, you know, children look at and they copy. And it's just this performance, I think. Social media for me, there's too much performance there. And it's really sad. I think people don't even read our stories anymore. Mm-hmm. That's what's so sad. Sometimes people go to social media pages that they know have the information. They just want to read a few tweets.
1: And then that's Nobody, it.
0: you know, I'm really happy when people tell me that I, they read my story to the end because it's like, who is reading stories nowadays? Mm-hmm. Right? So, uh, yeah, I think it's good and bad if there were if there was a vote for let's cancel all social media no you know at the end of the day you just need to take what is good and you leave the bad out and you try to, to balance it that's mm-hmm. what it is it has really democrat it has made reaching out to sources so easy for me it has made following the news so easy for me i can never fault that i can never not be grateful for that but at the same time i see what it's doing to people i see how it's making people there's a there's kind of a an army of uncritical thinkers that social media is breeding True. And it's, it's like, uh, I don't know what is going to happen to the next generation, but I, I don't want to be around to see it mm. if it if goes if it goes this way, you know. And I just hope there's some kind of intervention. I don't know what will happen. I don't know how that would work, but I think there needs to be a kind of like an awakening. So people really realize that, you know, we, we, you can still keep your voice. You can still be a unique you, even if you're on social media. Yes. You don't have to follow what everybody else is saying. That's important so i i guess for now we, it's, it's what it is and we just have to take it the way it is <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: even today i was thinking about how if it wasn't for social media especially during this critical time of covid i wouldn't be able to have this conversation with you i wouldn't be able to speak to you yeah you would i even know that you existed or would you have exactly. ever been this close you know just like you said so close but so far so close in reach yeah would i be able to hear of the stories of tunde nakoya? Um, would i be able to yeah. speak to you i, I wouldn't you know <laughs> so many beautiful people that that I've been able to connect with recording across time zones it's it's really bridging the gap but just like yeah. you said you know we need to take what is important and and just step away and move away from what is not because the rest of that stuff is detrimental yeah and mm-hmm. with that said ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for listening to this episode it has been so delightful because I've learned so very much it's been a moment of reflection once again to see how far we've come along the journey how far I've come along you know in my personal journey of growth and development and just be coming, you know, the best version that I was created to be mm-hmm. being as impactful and as beneficial to others as I can possibly be. And I'm super, super grateful, you know, because that reminds me that there has been support that's there, you know, just pushing me forward and, and taking me to to those heights that that we're achieving, you know. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's really been an absolute pleasure and an honor. And I'm so grateful, you know, that you were able to be comfortable and open with me and just share,
0: you know, bear it all. Yeah. Thank <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: And I really do hope to have many more impactful conversations like this with many more other Africans that are doing the absolute most, and even non Africans, you know, that are just understanding that we need to be a more united world. We need to be a world that is focused on morality, focused on the greater good, and not just the profit margins or the likes, the trends, the clout, and the herd community wokeness, you know, that is really driving Mm -hmm. all of us into the So please Mm -hmm. do go and follow Miss Sholalawal on Instagram, that is sholalawal underscore, and, you know, go and read her articles, go and follow the work that she's doing. On that note, let us not forget what happened on the 20th of October, 2020, you know, the unfortunate killings. Let us use social media, you know, to advance that movement. We may be in our respective homes in our different countries outside of Nigeria, but it is our collective responsibility as not just Africans but as human beings man to support our people and to put an end to police brutality for all not only in Nigeria but all the other movements I mean there's just so much that is happening in the world that is just horrible that is heartbreaking Afghanistan there's a lot I think the message here is just let's be more mindful let's be our brother's keeper and do our little bits to make this place a better place to live in that's it for me take care stay blessed mwah Sakina has spoken you mm-hmm.